Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Ryan Kennedy. And today I'm joined by Jason Lee. He is a rockstar real estate agent in the multifamily space. He's worked with a bunch of high net worth individuals in San Diego County. Most of you uh, who listen to my show regularly know San Diego is my home base. That's where I invest in real estate. That's where I live. And I freaking love it here. It's the greatest city in the country, if you ask me. And so he's he's done a ton of volume. He's represented over 100 investors, sold over $250 million worth of real estate. He's one of the top producing agents in the county. And he's, uh, he's a total rock star. This guy's a stud. He's only 26 years old. He owns over 100 units in San Diego, uh, over $50 million portfolio. So I'm like, Jason, young dude getting after it. Let's chat. Let's, let's get you on the show. I'd love to connect. So here we are. So, uh, dude, how'd you get into real estate? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Uh, good to be here. The way I got into real estate is kind of, um, kind of mix of luck and just me looking for what to do. I think, um, in college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, my whole life, my parents actually were pushing me to go into medicine, but I just dreaded the idea of going to medical school and doing like a four-year residency and getting like a real paycheck at 32 with like almost half a million debt. So that idea just sounded horrible to me. So I completely switched paths my third year at San Diego state. And I just joined uh, a real estate club on campus and like a finance club, because I saw that a lot of the kids that were doing really well in my fraternity, their parents were in real estate or some sort of finance. So I tried it and I ended up starting an internship at a commercial real estate firm down in San Diego, um, right by point Loma, you know what that is. Yeah. So, um, and from there, I kind of just learned the business from my mentors there and never look back. Epic dude. Yeah. I noticed the same thing early on. Whenever I meet like super successful, like financially, like people that were balling out, all of them were in real estate, like in, in some degree. And so that's where I was like, oh, there's clearly something here. Yeah. Um, so, so how'd you, how'd you go from, you know, so, so you got into brokerage, I imagine, like did you start just as an agent representing, you know, buyers and sellers and what, what, as a follow-up to that, what led you into commercial rather than residential? Yeah, I get that question a lot because people say you kind of start selling residential and then you go into commercial, but that wasn't really my path. I just ended up connecting with a commercial real estate broker at my school and ended up just starting that way. And um, a lot of the people that I know that are doing really well in commercial real estate as an agent or a broker, they kind of just started on the path when they were younger and started right, right away in commercial. So even though there's a lot of differences between commercial and residential. It's a lot of the same skill sets because you have to be a same, a, a good salesperson in both industries. You have to know your numbers somewhat much more commercial, but um, you have to be a likable person that people trust and that people think you're an expert in. So um, whether you start in commercial or residential doesn't matter, just pick the path that works better for you. Um, for me, I liked commercial more because it's more numbers based. It's more investor friendly. I like that a lot because I'm more of a numbers guy myself, whereas in residential, my girlfriend's a residential. It's a lot more emotional, a lot more like a, a lot more like ups and downs because people like cancel escrow over like a fireplace being cracked or like the kitchen not being big enough. I don't know if I could deal with that. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that never happens in investment real estate. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I don't know why. Um, people always kind of start with the residential because, uh, you know, from the outside in, it just seems like commercial would make a lot more sense, but bigger values as far as property values and, you know, commissions are based on that 
you know, so that seems like you, you get paid more per deal. Uh, your clients are likely to be buying and selling a lot more volume than someone who's just buying their home to live in for their life, you know? And so it seems like you, each client you pick up, you get more transaction volume. And then you also have, to your point, less emotions in the decision-making. It's like, Hey, either the property pencils or it doesn't. And I don't really care if this is ugly or not. Like if it cash flows and it's in a good area, like I'm game. So it just seems like from all fronts, commercial is like the move. Uh, why do you think so many agents go the residential route instead of commercial? Is there like a difference in licensing or a difference in the in like the process of getting started? No, that's a great question. So no difference. It's all the same license. I think I think in every single state it's the same license, but commercial is it's a lot harder to break into because in residential, kind of anyone can be a client if they're in their early 30s looking to, you know, have kids, looking to kind of move into their forever home, right? So yeah. anyone can be a client, anyone in the middle class, anyone in the upper class. But for the investment world, your your niche is so much smaller. Your client base is so much smaller. So it's harder to kind of gain the trust of those high quality, high transaction clients that already have relationships with people who've been doing this for 20 to 30 years. So it's really hard to break in. But once you do break in, it's definitely more lucrative. Like you said, you have a lot more repeat clients. You have clients that grow with you, a lot of referrals. So it's a lot harder to break into commercial. And that's why it's kind of a revolving door. A lot of kids come in, think it's going to be easy, quit. Um, sometimes we'll go to residential because it's a lot easier to find a lead in residential. So that's that's like the pros and cons of both. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I could see that side of it. And then as far as the... Um you know, representation you do with your, your business, it, do you do a lot of wholesaling or is it mainly all, you know, you always put things on the market and kind of go through more of a traditional uh, representation for your clients? Yeah, no, um, I'm a broker. So we have a fiduciary obligation to list the property and sell for the highest price, no matter what seller works with us. If it's a buyer. We only go after properties that are, you know, in the database or on the market. So we don't work with wholesalers and we never wholesale. It's not something that's that fits our business model you can't like be an agent represent people and also try to sell their property for a discount so it doesn't work out it's to totally different uh industry interesting oh yeah. so people so i've heard uh, a few people i know who, who who dabbled in both is that like not not kosher with uh with with laws in california or is that like nationwide well, wholesaling is illegal in certain states in in, uh, in the u.s it's not illegal in california but Generally, if you have your real estate license and you practice real estate and you're actively buying, selling properties, it's a really bad look to your reputation if you're also a wholesaler, because if you're doing both, it, it doesn't really make sense because the wholesaler is like more the investor side. They're kind of looking to tie up properties in escrow, try to find a buyer for it, assign it. I think the whole model is kind of, it's not straightforward because a lot of wholesalers lie to sellers. They say, oh, I'll buy your property all cash, quick close. And then they have like 15 potential buyers come through their house and they assign it to a different buyer. So it's totally different than what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could see the questionable ethics in it as well, just from the outside looking in on it. Um, and and for people listening in that don't know what wholesaling real estate is, is basically where you get a, a, a property under contract for, let's say, 100 grand. And then you go and find a buyer who's willing to pay 120 grand. And then you pocket the difference and you just basically connect the two parties uh, to, yep. to fulfill the transaction. But because of that, it... One, I, I can only imagine a seller would have a pretty bitter taste in their mouth to think like, man, I I, I thought this guy was paying me five, 500 grand. And, and now it turns out like 
he's making a hundred grand just so that other guy can pay 600, but I'm not receiving the 600. I'm only receiving the 500. So it, it, it's always like struck me as like a kind of con artist type of situation. <laughs> I don't yeah. mean to like be derogatory because I know a few people at wholesale that, that, that are really good dudes. And, and I think there's a ethical way to go about it and a non-ethical way to go about it just with like anything. Yeah. Right. But exactly. uh, whenever I hear of these like wholesale deals and, you know, I'm like, really? Like, that's a thing. Wow. That's, it's kind of shocking to me, you know? Yeah. But yeah, that- no, it, it, it's definitely, you're hundred percent right. There's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. You can be honest about it or you can be dishonest and do it in a bad way. Yeah. 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 Got it. Got it. And then how, how did you get started in investing at such an early age? So can you talk through like your story as far as like, you know, how you did your first year in brokerage and, you know, how you got your foot in the door when you mentioned like commercial is harder to break into uh, as a young guy, how'd you get into it in terms of making successful, you know, clients and, and getting some good commissions in your pocket and then turning that around and, and actually buying property, which is not an easy thing to do, especially here in this market. Yeah. So all our properties are in San Diego. It hasn't been easy, but the way I got started was in brokerage. I was just, hitting the phones all day long, trying to find buyers, trying to find sellers, just trying to get someone to talk to me and give me a shot. Um, I think one thing that someone should take away from the show is that it's almost impossible to break into real estate if you don't have a good mentor or a good senior broker, because when you actually go to the meetings, which is the most important part, and you go by yourself and you have no idea how to conduct a meeting, no idea how to close when you start, it's virtually impossible to beat your competition because no matter what, there's at least there's at least two or three other brokers in big markets like San Diego that are chasing after the same deal. So that, that was number one. But once I got my feet feet wet and the hard work paid off, I was, you know, working like 12, 14 hour days in the office. And once like I really started to see things pick up, I started to build a good client base and my income went up significantly. So from 2018 to 2023, um, you know, I've netted about almost 5 million in commission income. So I, I wow. basically reinvested all the money I've made into assets in San Diego. So the way I learned how to buy real estate was actually just asking my clients just intelligent questions. So I would ask them, you know, how did you find, like, how did you find, like build your portfolio? how did you find this property? How'd you, you know, why was this a good deal? Why was it a bad deal? Why'd you pass on it? So I would ask these questions and I was seeing how much money they were making and they encouraged me to um, buy some properties myself. So after just learning the game and learning from my clients, I just kind of took their same strategies and bought my first deal in 2020 and then just went kind of head on from there. So when you, you said during those few years, when you netted five mil, this is like your first few years in the business. Oh no. Um, no. Um, that was over four years. Over four years. And that's like been your entire basically career to this point. Yeah. Yeah. Right around there. Nice. Dude, that's epic. That's awesome. And when it comes to the lead gen side of things, what's, what's your strategy? You mentioned like picking up the phone calling. So are you just looking on at, at, you know, property owners information that you track down to one of these database websites and then just literally calling them? And what is your, what is your initial like hook look like? How do you get them to not hang up on you? Cause dude, as a property owner that owns, you know, bunch of property here in San Diego myself. I get these calls all the fucking time. And I think a lot of them are wholesalers, <laughs> but you know, it's like yeah. multiple times every day I'll get these calls. And most of the time it's, you know, I just don't answer them. But when I do, 
I'm not very receptive to being like, yeah, let me talk to you. And, and granted, I'm not looking to sell. So that's a big part of it. But uh, I'm curious to hear what you found to be successful in that lead gen process. Yeah. So we do a lot of different kinds of lead gen now. Um, you know, postcard campaigns have worked decently for us. Um, I'm pretty active on social media. The podcast has been a good lead generator for like buyer leads. And then, but honestly, my number one lead gen source has just been, yeah, pulling property owners from title companies and calling them directly. You're you're very correct, Ryan. Most sellers are not receptive to say two words to you on the phone. If you say you're an agent and you ask them if they're selling, uh, you'll know very quickly if they want to talk to you or not. And um, they usually won't be that nice about it. So it'll be it's a lot of abrupt calls. No, 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 goodbye. But, you know, there's one out of 500 that are looking to actively sell. You caught them at the right time. Some big life event happened because usually people look to sell when something happens in their life, whether it's a partnership dissolution, whether, you know, their wife might have passed away or their kids are causing issues, whatever it is. Um, you're trying to just catch people at the right time. And there's no better way to do that than being actively just having conversations with people. And how have you learned to deal with all that rejection? Because I got to imagine, so I've never had like a, a actual like sales position in my, obviously what I do is definitely involve sales, like growing my practice, signing on new patients. Yeah. Like there's a sales component that I think everyone's life and everyone's career, no matter who you are and what you do, even if you work at W2, right? But yep. um, God, I got to imagine it's just soul crushing to be like answering the phone and every, you know, two <laughs> minutes you're just getting like hung up on or reeled out or saying, you know, people are, People are me, dude. It's like, and, and yeah. they're busy and they got all sorts of stuff going on. So it's like, what, what tactics can you share that you found helpful to kind of deal with a lot of that, uh, the psychological burden of just being like rejected over and over and over again? Yeah, it, it's really hard mentally, especially if you've never had any sort of sales career before. For like a summer in college, I, I sold solar door to door. And that was like the worst rejection I've ever had because it's face to face. People are like slamming the door shut on you. People are, you know, telling you to F off in front of your face. Yeah. So after dealing with that struggle and like kind of building that muscle of dealing with rejection, when I got on the phones in real estate, like it, just, it was really easy because I'm like, oh, I'm only getting rejected on the phone. I'm sitting here. All I have to do is pick up the phone and talk to people. If they tell me to go screw off, whatever, it's fine. At least I'm not doing it in person. So I think having that, face-to-face -face experience, just straight cold to door meetings was really good. But if you're someone who's never had a sales career, I just think that you got to just train your mind that nothing they say is personal. I mean, they're getting a lot of calls a day from random companies and they're just telling you the same thing they tell everyone else. So yeah. you can't take it personally. It's a part of the job. And if you want to become successful, in real estate, rejection has to be like second nature to you. It, like it can't affect you at all. And have you tried any like unique hooks that you found to be successful of being like, you know, looking at their property on Google Maps and being like, yo, dude, have you seen this? Like, you know, something that's going to be a little bit of a pattern interrupt and like catch their attention more than like, hello, sir, I'm agent, you know, Jason Lee, uh, you know, I'd like to represent you. Yeah, I, I never say that. I, I I call I just call them, say their first name, and I usually say that I have something for them. When you offer something, whether you're in real estate or in any industry, it's it's a much easier pitch. So um we have a lot of off-market deals going on at all times. So I'll call someone and say, Hey Ryan, I'm just calling about an off-market property. I've worked in right by your property, North Park. It's about two blocks down from yours. Just want to see if you want to take a look at it. If so, uh, I can shoot you an email and tell you all about it. 
And that pitch has worked really well for me because number one, it's a lot better than asking if they're just selling because then you're kind of asking for something from them. Yeah. Like imagine if someone calls you and say, Hey, are you selling? Or versus like, Hey, I have this deal. It's a really good deal. It's two blocks from your property. Like the, the two calls are going to go very differently. Totally. I like that. That's a really good uh, way to frame it to, to kick off the conversation. And then uh, as far as, um, you know, what, what, what are your recommendations for someone who's maybe like just part-time looking for some deals? Is there any way to effectively do this? Cause one of the things I've found challenging is, you know, keeping an eye out for deals. Uh, I don't want to have like a cold calling team. I don't want to do a bunch of lead gen. I don't want to be on the phones, you know, all day putting in the reps, but I would love, I'd love to find some good deals. Right. So, so for someone like myself who has capital and experience and ability to, you know, purchase real estate off market, I'd love to find more off market deal flow. What do you think I could do? Is this like a couple hours a week? You know, is that like just a total silly question? Cause there's nothing I could do, or is there something not at all? What, what would you say is a good use of my time? If I'm like, Jason, you know what? I'm all in on health and health and wellness. Like that's my main business, but you know what? Like love to dabble a little bit and get a little more deal flow than what I can see on the MLS or on LoopNet. Uh, what would you say is a good use of my time there? That's a great question. I get that all the time. And most of my clients are people like you. They work full time. They have successful businesses and they don't have time to look for deals. So yeah. the best way to make use of your time is to focus on creating relationships with people that are actively on the phones like myself. So um, if you if you can network with like four to five brokers in San Diego that are actively selling the kind of deals that you want to buy, you can work you know, less than an hour a week and get deal flow if you follow up with them at least like, you know, twice a month. So, so, so one um, of the challenges I've had there, because that's obviously like a no brainer, like, yeah, work with an expert that's, that's in it, you know, in the trenches and can send you the the gems. Yeah. But I feel like it's hard. Like, for example, Jason, you and I just met today, right? Uh, if I say, dude, start sending me some deals, right? You get some off market gems, like, let me know, dude, I'd love to, I'd love to see them. I'd love to put in an offer. I, you know, send you my pre-qualification, all this, all this stuff to show you like I'm, I'm a legitimate buyer. I feel like you have a lot of other clients who you've been with, who you've serviced and other transactions who would be uh, higher on the hierarchy of first pick uh, as far as like new deals. Uh, and that would not, not anything against you, but that would be like most brokers I think would have like a whole Rolodex of clients that they know are like super loaded, ready to close, guaranteed, you know, like they know their stuff. Um, and so I feel like anything I get sent by brokers will be like kind of the scraps, if that makes sense, because they already have like their, their super, you know, premium clients that uh, they do a ton of business with and have a good experience and track record with uh, who would get dibs over someone like myself, where it's like, we just met recently. And like, you, you know, how am I going to be the, your first call on a deal? You'd be surprised, actually, especially right now in this market, there's a lot less buyers that are actively looking. So I mean, in the past, Ryan, have you like, would you actively follow up with these brokers at least like once a month? Uh, I haven't done this in the past. I've, I'm totally oh. just like talking out of my ass is like an assumption that's maybe way out of left field and just like kind of also Got talking it. to friends who are in the industry. So I, I have some friends who are in commercial real estate that are brokers, different markets, not in San Diego. They, they work in different areas of the country. And, uh, you know, they just shared with me, that's kind of like, the process a little bit like behind the scenes, not always, but you know, like that's, you, de you definitely have like your, your longer term clients that you've done a ton of deals for that's, you know, going to be a priority over someone new uh, that, that, you know, 
someone fresh, you know, does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. And it's actually, um, it's actually not that. Yes, that's true to some extent, but I, I have like a list of people that I'll send certain properties to based on their criteria. So if you, if I didn't know who you were and you came up to me and said, Hey, I'm looking for a property and you were pretty specific on what you wanted. Like, Hey, I can go up to 2 million. I'm only looking in central San Diego. I'm looking for value add, nothing that's fixed up. I want to fix it up myself. If you give me some, some qualifications to work with, there's a higher chance that I'll think of you when I find a deal that works for you. And I've sent some really good deals to first time clients and they've closed and you can build a relationship with a broker very quickly. If you are proactively just calling them at least like, you know, once every two weeks saying, Hey, are you working on anything? I'm actively looking, I've got cash ready to go. So if you show them that you have the capability to buy and also that you're proactive, they're going to think of you when they find something. So be specific, be proactive and show them, show them that you can close. And once you close one deal successfully with a broker that's active in the market, like myself, they'll send you deals forever. It only takes one deal to like build a good relationship. So it's, it's not as hard as you think it is. That's really good advice. I'll have to tell you about my buy box after this off, offline and maybe you can uh, start <laughs> sending me some deal flow. And, and as far we'll as, do. um, as far as like some of the stuff you invest in, I'd love to get a little background on, you know, what your portfolio looks like uh, today, you know, as far as your, your hundred units in San Diego and, you know, kind of where you started with that. Yeah. So I honestly bought most of them in 2021 and you'd be surprised. A lot of the properties I actually bought were sitting on the MLS and um, a lot of them were also purchased from brokers that are my friends. So it just came from relationships and from other people, mostly people think that I just because I'm a broker. I find my own deals. It's not true. Most of the deals I find, I usually broker out to other people. So, um, I built the portfolio really based on my whole strategy has been buying smaller properties in the beginning, but I sold all the smaller properties a, like a year or two later and I 1031 exchanged into bigger assets. So for example, I bought like two fourplexes in 2020. I rehabbed them, got them up to speed, market rents. And um, I bought them both for like a million each. I sold both of them for like a total of like 3.8 million. Nice. Took like, you know, took like all that profit and put it into a, a 16 unit building by San Diego State. So I did that like four or five times, those like big exchanges. And it's worked out really, really well. And so is most of the stuff that you own currently the larger, you know, five unit plus buildings, or do you also have some single family and small, you know, two to four unit multifamily? Yeah, I've actually never owned a single family home. The smallest I had was a duplex, but um, I sold all the two to four stuff, except for I have one left that I'm looking to sell soon. But um, other than that, yeah, it's mostly all five plus now. Got it. Got it. I like it, man. I like it. Yeah. So the only kind of the close the loop on the lead gen stuff, the only real like off market deal I've done that was just, I, I mean, a couple, couple that might qualify as this, but um, I was actually door knocking in my neighborhood, you know, and uh, one of my wow. neighbors, you know, it was just like total, like serendipitous situation. Um, have you, do you have any experience with that? Is that, is that a strategy you've, you've leveraged is like in-person door knocking? 
I never have actually. No, it's not really a strategy for investment real estate because usually they don't live at yeah, the property. So, yep. So rentals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, in, in regards to the content marketing that you do, uh, what have you seen really work uh, on that front? Like what, where are you spending most of your time when it comes to social media and such that you've seen yields, good returns as far as generating new leads and new clients and all that? Yeah, I think number one has been Instagram. I think a lot of younger professionals, kind of like in their early 30s to like late 40s, a lot of those people are on Instagram now. So a lot of them in San Diego have seen my stuff, seen my like educational content and have reached out to me for properties or looking to maybe sell their property. Um, so Instagram and LinkedIn as well has been like the top two platforms. I'm trying to get more into YouTube because that's more of like a longer term organic play that I really like, but it's really hard to grow on YouTube, but it just takes a lot of time. Oh, you're telling me, dude, I've been <laughs> posting on YouTube for a while and it's not, it's not a catapult up. You got to definitely put in the reps and it seems it's definitely a, a slow, slow roll. Uh, as far as um, to totally switch gears, I'm curious, yeah. uh, do you own or rent your primary home? Uh, I currently, I rent my primary and what are your thoughts on owning versus buying a somewhat expensive primary home in San Diego? Cause I'm kind of, I've been going back and forth on this, Jason, of, of like kind of my next move. Um, and man, it just doesn't seem like it makes any sense to buy a house in San Diego. If you're in like a certain price range, right. If you're looking at like a, call it, I don't know, one and a half to two and a half million dollar price point, And you look at like what your PITI would be. And then you compare that to what those same houses are renting for. There's just such a yeah. weird margin, like a, such a weird, uh, you know, gap between like rents and, yep. and ownership costs. And that doesn't include all the maintenance and upkeep and repairs and all that jazz, right? Um, what are your thoughts on it? Dude, I'm so glad you brought this up because I post this video on TikTok and I got like 400 comments of people just like hating on me for it. Like, you're so stupid. You should own a primary. Like, you're an idiot. You have <laughs> well, no idea all, what you're talking about. So, so all the real estate big dogs, like, you know. Robert Kiyosaki, Grant Carter, all these guys that are like, you know, billionaire real estate owners all talk about how your primary home should not be an investment, you know? Yeah. Cause it's, cause it's not because here's the thing. Like if you're, if you're a couple that, you know, both work at, you know, let's say you work at Qualcomm and Microsoft and you're both W2 employees and it's taken you five years to save up for a house, you have like 250 to 300K to put down in a house here in San Diego. That's great. But you've saved up all that money. And you're putting it into an asset that you have to pay for, right? So once you buy that property, you're paying the mortgage, you're paying the taxes, you're paying the water bill, electric bill, everything, insurance. But when you buy a fourplex or an investment property, the tenants pay for all that stuff, except for maybe, you know, yeah, they pay for everything because even though you have a lot of expenses, you cash flow from the rents from the tenants. Yep. So they're paying down your mortgage, they're paying your property taxes, they're paying everything. So that's like the difference between a liability and an asset. An asset cash flows, a liability takes money out of your pocket. And what like what you said, if you if you rent a two million dollar house in San Diego, your rent's gonna be anywhere between like seven to ten K a month, depending on how like nice the house is. But yeah. if you were to buy that house and put four hundred K down, twenty percent down, and you were to have a mortgage. That mortgage at today's rates, it's like with property taxes, we did the math, it's like sixteen to seventeen thousand a month. Yeah. So well, I, I calculated something a little less, but yeah, it's definitely like 
12 to 14 a month is what I found was like a $2 million purchase price with 20% down just because property taxes here are like what, one and a quarter percent. I guess yeah, it adds up what... on a big price point. And then, and then, um, dude, that, that spread is crazy. Like it's a double, uh, to, to own versus, versus rent. Yeah. Yeah. Plus your, yeah, your, your, your payments less for rent and you have, you still have your nest egg to invest in something. So yeah. Yeah. it just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I'd much rather just say like, just rent where I live and save all my capital to invest. And it's worked well, it's worked out well. That's what, uh, that's what I'm kind of leaning towards. I guess that the only argument that could be made on the other side is if you did get uh, like a low, low down payments, uh, loan product, you know, whether yeah. it's a FHA or VA or, you know, some, some first time home buyer program and you have minimal mm -hmm. down payment. And then when interest rates were, you know, 3%, it was a lot of different numbers than exactly. where they're at now. Yep. Um, so, so I could see how someone can make the argument in like, you know, couple years ago that it, that it could be uh make sense but now with where interest rates are the spread is just crazy um yep. it, it's wild to me so yeah i'm glad that i see you know you see eye to eye here you're confirming my my uh theory that uh, i think that's going to be the, the next best move and then as far as um with kind of uh the investing that you do here what do you, what, what's kind of your criteria that you look for? Is there a certain market, like a certain subsect of San Diego you, you aim for and, and do you buy uh, only like fixer uppers and do a lot of rehab and, and value add to them? Yeah, we're actually not location focused and actually we've been looking at um, warehouses industrial lately too. Um, Cause there's a lot of opportunity there, but we're not, we look anywhere in San Diego County. I'm very familiar with every part of San Diego. So I'm comfortable buying anywhere in the County. Um, but yeah, you're correct. We look for, anything we can add value to. So whether it's like a development or a big value add, what, wherever we can put money in and get an X amount of return out and force appreciation and be able to refinance or sell it for a higher price a year later, that's the kind of value we look for. And that's how you can grow your portfolio quickly. Because if you buy it at you know top of market rates and you can't add value, then you're just betting on appreciation. And appreciation is not something you should bet on in any market because uh, there's a lot more risk. But if you buy something that's below market value, you add value to it. Um, even if the market drops, you're still doing well because you bought it for a low price. So that's been my philosophy and it's worked really well. And that's not my philosophy. It's what I got from all my clients that are much smarter and more successful than me. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense when you could do that value add. And um, what type of cap rates are you typically seeing with some of the properties that you sell and stuff that you buy yourself? Yeah, it, it really varies. So cap rate is determined by kind of by multiple things, but the thing in San Diego is the better the location you're in, the lower the cap rate will be. So if you're like right by the ocean, your cap rates can be pretty bad. It's gonna be like, you know, still like low, high threes, maybe low fours. Um, cause it's like a trophy asset. There's very low risk. Because the higher the cap rate, it's higher the risk, lower the cap rate, lower the risk, usually, if you're paying market prices. So if you go to like City Heights, the cap rate's like in the mid fives, high fives. But um, North Park, right now it's getting higher. North Park's like four and a half, five percent 5%. So cap rates are going up because interest rates are going up. So interest rates also affect cap rates. And if you're listening to the show, you don't know what a cap rate is, the easiest way I can explain it, just so you don't get confused, it's just what your return on cash would be if you bought the property all cash. So if you bought a 5% cap rate and you paid all cash for it, uh, you would cash flow $50,000 a year 
uh, from the asset. So simple explanation. Yep. I mean, yeah, that, that checks out of what, what I've seen, um, which is definitely not, not the ideal uh, return from the get-go, but to your point, <laughs> when, uh, when you do the value add, you raise rents, you bring up the NOI, uh, it definitely can be a lot, a lot better than that after, uh, after some yep. little bit of a DLC. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Nice, man. It's hard it, to buy in San Diego. It, it is. Why, why did, have you decided to, to purchase most of your, or I guess all of your own portfolio here versus out of state? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I probably will venture out of state at some point just because, um, you know, it, it's, I think you kind of diversify yourself if you look at other markets too. So there's a lot of other great cities out there. So I think for like diversification, it's great. And also um, red states have much less laws on the, on the uh, landlord. So that's also a huge plus. So, yeah, I mean, I asked my, I asked the same question myself. Why don't I look anywhere else? But probably because I'm so comfortable with San Diego, but um, yeah, I don't know. It, aren't all your properties in San Diego too? They sure are. They sure are. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting because I, uh, well, when I first started, I didn't really think out of state, I didn't even know that much about real estate when I first got going, you know, going back eight years ago. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where I was like, yeah, it's here. That makes sense. Like, why would I buy over there when I could buy here? And so it was just kind of a, a thing that I decided without a lot of intention or education around it. And, and then the other factor that, uh, I, I weigh into the consideration is I've already built a really good Rolodex here of, of handyman and contractors and electricians and plumbers and people yeah. that I can get work done for pretty cheap. And because we have such close proximity to the border, uh, you know, you can get relatively cheap labor, you know, of people coming over the border to, to get work and they're super hardworking, grateful people that get after it for less wages than you would normally expect to, 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 for people to charge. Uh, and that that's obviously can be a huge advantage when you're rehabbing and and maintaining a property. Uh, and then I, to your point, I have a super good grip on the rental market, you know, as far as what market rents could be, how to market it, you know, what areas are, are desirable and what it, all those sorts of nuances just from like having a lot of experience in this market. And I just kind of thought, you know, over the years, like, man, if I go somewhere else, I'm going to have to start over. And uh, I think that there's now what I, what I know now, I don't think I'll, buy much more in San Diego, unless it's like a really good deal. Yeah. Um, because to your point, I think there's just a lot of advantages to buying out of state. And I, I built it up in my head to, I think it's more of a, like a limiting belief and, and not factual that it'd be a ton of work and trouble and headache to, to kind of replicate a Rolodex of good, you know, managers and, and, and handyman and people on my team out of state. I think that's very doable. And after reading a couple of books and talking to people that do just that, uh, I think it's something that I built in my head to be more than it really is. And so moving forward, I think I would uh, buy stuff, you know, not in San Diego, but you get, you know, great appreciation. I think that there's definitely a lot of benefit to being in a city where a lot of people want to live. And there's no yep. like, dude, there's only so much land here and it's all freaking built out. Like there's yeah. not, it's not like we have rolling hills with tons of acreage that we could build new developments. Like it's, it's pretty capped. So it's like, you only have a finite amount of supply. Like I mentioned, it's the greatest city in the country, if you ask me. And so yeah. when you factor these things in, it's like, I think there's a lot of room for growth in, in this market, when you, especially when you compare it to like San Francisco, New York, some of these markets that are a lot more expensive, but way shittier, if you ask me, like they're yeah. not as nice as San Diego to live as far as quality of life. 
So those are some factors that kind of go through my head. But I think moving forward from here, knowing what I know now, um, I think it would be wise for me to start venturing out. Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, San Diego is a great city because, yeah, I mean, there's not there's no supply, like you said. I mean, you have the ocean, the border, you have the desert, the mountains, and then you have Camp Pendleton. So got it all. San, San Diego is a very, very small like big city compared to most and yep. it's the best weather in the country. So everyone wants to live here. I think social media blew it up too, because ever since like, you know, social media got popular, people see how great San Diego is and like what happened in the pandemic, everyone from LA and SF working at remote tech jobs, they all moved to San Diego or some other sunny city in the world. So yeah. Pure paradise out here, dude. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and it, it suits my lifestyle. Like I, I don't, I hate the politics in California. I hate the taxes. Like I, there's a lot of things about California that suck, you know, our <laughs> governor's a freaking complete moron, corrupt asshole. So it's like, there's a lot of things that aren't good, but, uh, as far as the things that I enjoy day to day, like I love to surf. I love to mountain bike. I love Mexico. I love the food here. I love the people. Like there's so many things that, that really suit my lifestyle well to where it would be difficult for me to live many other places in the country. And I have like a lot of family here, friends here, you know, it's like a lot of community. Um, so, so I also realized like, since I'm likely going to stay here long-term kind of makes sense to have some of my assets and uh, easy management uh, on some of my properties here locally. Yeah. But I'm curious to hear your take dude on, I know that, you know, you probably don't have a crystal ball. Uh, neither do I, but where, where do you think the market's going in San Diego specifically? Because it's been so mixed across the country. You know, you have certain markets that have gone up year over year, certain markets that have gone down a lot, like, you know, or Arizona markets and then out in like Boise and, and Austin, you know, it's markets that have had double digit declines. I think San Diego, I've read, has been like four or 5% decline year over year, something pretty mild. But I'm curious mm -hmm. to hear your take on like where we're at now. And where you see things going the next, you know, call it 12 to 24 months uh, as far as like home values and prices and and, and demands and, and supply and all those metrics. Yeah. So two very different things I want to go over are the demand in residential and single family homes versus investment real estate here in San Diego. Um, my, my partner is on one of the bigger residential real estate teams in central San Diego and they have a lot of listings and every single listing they have, it gets multiple offers and they keep raising the prices on these homes because there's just no supply out there. I mean, is San that, Diego's- Sorry to interject, but is that yeah. just within the last few months or has that been kind of no. constant even when we had more slowdown like last fall? I mean, there was like a small lull when rates shot up, but um it's back to being crazier than ever because there's, there's no supply. No, I don't care what happens with rates or the economy. People are still raising families. People are still popping out babies. People are still, you know, looking for more space and people want to live in San Diego. And the unfortunate thing is, is that so many people locked in these low 3%, 2% even interest rates yeah. in the last, you know, three, four years. And because of that, not many people are looking to move anymore. Yeah. The average person lived in their house. Uh, they did a, they did a stat. I think it was done by like MIT or something or Harvard, but they they did a stat where like twenty years ago, people moved out of their house like every five to seven years, and they did this study again like two years ago, and now it's like averaging like fifteen to seventeen years 
when they stay in a house. So that drastically reduces supply, mm-hmm. which means, you know, the, the demand curve is always going to be in the seller's favor, at least in San Diego. And like yeah. you said, they can't build here when you're, if you're, if you're in Boise, if you're in Texas, if you're in Arizona, you can build for miles and miles and miles. I'm sure yeah. those cities are getting hit harder, but San Diego is a different market. Yeah. So residential, you think, uh, you know, as far as right now, I'm curious, something I've been thinking about, Jason, I'm curious to get your feedback on this. I've been thinking about offloading one or two of my properties, uh, which are single family homes. And if, you know, I have low rates and great terms and, you know, it's cash flow well, but I'm thinking of doing the whole 1031 into something bigger, you know, more commercial and looking at my like return on equity and like, you know, where rents are at, you know, all the, all the metrics, right. And seeing if it would be sensible time, time-wise to, you know, trade up into something like a bigger asset. Um, and so you think residential, like right now is a is pretty hot market. Cause I'm not as in tune with like the, the, you know, in the weeds transaction volume that your girlfriend probably sees. It, yeah. It's, it's still very much hot. I mean, so I'll, I'll give you an example. So they have a, um, they have a two bedroom house in Kensington built in 1920s. It's like historical. It's listed for 2.15 million. And they have multiple counters at, at like out at like two and a half million. Wow. wow. It's ridiculous. Um, she just tried making an offer on a $1.3 million property in Talmadge. It's going to go for like 1.45. They're still Jeez. going like way above asking it, it. It's, it's nuts. But for the investment side, the reason why it'd be a great move for you to do that is because you can still get a max price for your single family home from some home homeowner that wants to live there forever, right? Their forever home. Yep. And on my side of things in the investment world, there's like 80% less buyers than there were like in the peak of 2021. So there's just a lot less competition right now. And there's like inventory is going up. There are more sellers coming on the market, more properties coming on the market, but a lot of people are still either, you know, just don't want to deal with the higher rates or, or just waiting to see what happens. And my clients that are intelligent, that are, actively buying are getting some really good deals right now. And so with the 1031, you have a six month window, right? Or three months. What's, what's the logistics. And can I, as a follow-up to that, can I go from a single family rental property up to like a five unit plus commercial rental property? Is that, is that all good to go in this 1031 situation where you defer the taxes? Yep. As long as, um, as long as your single family home is an investment property, not a primary home, which it is for you it qualifies to 1031 to any kind of property. You can 1031 that into an office building, into apartments, into retail, whatever you want, because long as it's an investment property, no matter what kind of asset it is, it doesn't matter. As long as you file taxes as an investment, it's qualified in the IRS task, IRS tax code 1031. But um, yeah, the, the window is 180 days, so six months to close after you sell your property, but after you close escrow, you have 45 days to identify up to three properties, but usually we'll do a longer escrow, like a, like two or three 30 day extensions to make that process longer. So instead of having 45 days to find a property, you have 90 to 120 days to find a property. Um, but yeah, I like it, dude. I like it. So, so residential, you're thinking going nowhere, but up. Uh, as far as like home values in San Diego specifically, I know it's market, every market is yeah. freaking different, but San Diego, that's, that's what you're seeing uh, with the trends and then commercial, you're thinking that's going to take a little bit of a, 
of a backward step uh, with with the uh, lack of buying demands or where you see the commercial going in the next? I'm talking more short to medium yeah. term, like a one to two years out. Yeah, I, I think all of commercial real estate will see a dip, especially like office and retail. I mean, that's that's seeing a huge dip right now. Yeah. Um, industrials doing well, but still taking a dip. I think multifamily will also dip a little bit, but a lot less than the other three because multifamily is the most like recession resistant asset class um, in the world. So if you're going to be going down on prices in multifamily, like rates will have to be significantly higher than even than it is now because there's still decent demand to where prices will fall a little bit because demand is down a lot, but not like way too much to where it'll crash. But um, people still see multifamily as a safe haven. And they saw that when COVID happened. I mean, when COVID happened, everyone thought that people were going to stop paying rent. But overall in San Diego, they had like a 4% delinquency rate of people not paying rent. So I'm I'm still bullish on multifamily. But in the short term, yes, we'll see a, like a little lull, but nothing crazy, not a crash. Got it. Got it. Well, dude, I mean... You're really making me think about this. This might be a good opportunity for me to swap, do a couple of swaps here uh, for a little better return on equity and 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 change up to something higher. Do you do you see long term um, these asset classes that are struggling right now, like office buildings and some of the other commercial assets that aren't you know residential related? Do you see those bouncing back soon? Uh, you know, because with the whole work from home movement and like uh, uh, so many things changing, kind of for good in in that world. Uh, I'm curious if those things are going to be like a temporary lull or if that's that's going to be like uh, not coming. Yeah. Back. Everyone has different opinions on this topic, but I mean, there's I feel like there's a lot of companies that are asking uh, employees to come back to work. And I think it's going to happen more and more. If you're a big company and you don't have that offense environment, it kind of hurts your like your employee collaboration, that team environment. And I think most companies want that. Now, if you own office in a bad location where it's not desirable, where people don't want to be, yes, I think those assets will be screwed forever and will have to be turned into something else like residential apartments or something like that. But if you own like, like San Diego specific, if you own like a class A office building, like in Mission, like in a good part of Mission Valley or like in UTC, like you're going to be just fine. But yeah. Yeah. I think location matters much, much more for office um, and retail. And what type of stuff are you looking at the warehouses for? Are you looking at, you know, renting them, like leasing them to companies as fulfillment centers or what type of, uh, you mentioned that that's an asset class you're current, you personally are looking at. What's your game plan there? Yeah, I really like it because um, it's also an asset that's very restricted, like supply wise. Um, there's like a 3% vacancy rate for all available industrial um, warehouses in San Diego County. So the demand is there. It's very hot. Uh, rents are still going up quickly and um, the cap rates are a lot better. So the returns day one are a lot better than multifamily while the risk is still very low. So that's why I really like it. It's a very stable asset and it's actually a lot less management intensive. So I actually really like that as well. And what do people, is there like a, a majority percentage of use cases for for uh, those warehouse spaces specifically in this San Diego market? Because the reason I ask that is it doesn't seem logical to me for a company that's doing, you know, some type of e-commerce business or something where they need a fulfillment warehouse 
why would they would have it in San Diego and they could have it, you know, in another part of the country where it's way cheaper to, to, to own that type of space. Oh, I get what you're saying. So a lot of the tenants are like some sort of like contractors. Like we just met with like a sheet metal guy. Um, a lot of like roofing people. So it's a lot of like trades, trades okay. companies. And then it's also a lot of like fortune, like fortune 1000, like towing companies or like, um, bigger fulfillment centers like like a jerome's furniture is like a big uh -huh. property that we like we're looking at and then um of course there's i mean the biggest amazon amazon has a lot of centers here but um it's a lot of like those big you know a credit tenants and then there's also like the smaller mom and pop like tile shops or contractors so it's, it's it. kind of a wide range and we've actually seen a good amount of um like e-commerce fulfillment companies that are at these properties so um that is interesting yeah. And, and dude, I want to switch gears and just wrap up just getting yep. your, your um, insights and any, anything you feel uh, that comes to mind as far as sharing some value for people listening in with building your business. Cause you, you don't only invest, you also run a team, right? You have a whole, like uh, clarify this, is it your own brokerage and you have people working under you or do you work yeah. for another broker? Uh, the, the first one. Okay. And so what, what's that journey been like and what have you learned throughout the process of like hiring and building a team and managing people and, helping them to stay motivated and driven, all that sort of jazz. Yeah, it's definitely a new skill set that I had to learn and really become adapted to. But um, it's honestly been the favorite part of my journey so far. I really like, you know, building that company culture, building a team of like-minded individuals that are kind of have the same goal in mind. So I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think I've become a better and better leader as time went on, as I've read about it, learned about it, asked people about it. So it's definitely been a tough skill to adapt to, but I've loved the journey. One piece of advice I'd give for someone who's looking to kind of grow and hire people is always look for referrals first before you go on like a website like Indeed or any sort of like recruiting website. It's always got to like tap into your network and ask people like who'd be a good fit because when someone you trust can put in a good word for you, there's a much higher chance that that's going to go well. And that's how I have kind of recruited most of my people. And um, everyone's been absolutely fantastic to work with. That's awesome. That's awesome, Jason. Well, I want to wrap things up, brother. Where could people go to learn more about your work, your content, your your your, your brokerage, all that sort of good stuff? Yeah, best way to uh, contact me directly is probably on my Instagram or watch my content on YouTube. It's just Jason Joseph Lee, my full name. Jason Lee's two comments, so I couldn't take that name. And then uh, my website is www.jlmrealestateinc.com. Awesome. Awesome. I'll throw those notes or those links in the in the show notes for this episode. And uh, really appreciate you taking the time, dude. I'm excited to stay connected with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You as well.